Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Fear is a funny thing. In our personal life, it often holds us back from the things we know we should do. In our nation's collective life, fear often makes us do crazy things. To have a kind of emotional and moral breakdown that feeds on the sum total and power of individual fear. Such has been the case lately in our election and in discussions of immigration and our fear of the other amidst a rapidly changing world. To better understand where we are, we need only look back to the spring of 1942 under FDR when we rounded up over 100,000 residents of Japanese ancestry living along the West Coast and sent them to detention centers for the duration of the war. Each lost part of their lives, and some would argue that our nation lost part of its soul. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Richard Kahan. He's a journalist who writes about photography, art, and history. He worked for the Chicago Sun-Times. He's authored and co-authored dozens of books and works as a curator creating photo and exhibitions at the Chicago museums. It is my pleasure to welcome Richard Kahan here to talk about his book, Un-American, The Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about this book and what it is. It's not just a book. It is this incredible collection of photographs that have been assembled of what took place during this period of time. Yeah, it's, uh, the, book, the, book has a, the book is basically a picture book, but I've snuck in an awful lot of history um, and, and documentary work in, in this book. Um, it's, it's basically a collection of about 140. 40 or 50 photographs that were taken by either photographers who were working for the government and paid uh, paid by the government, and also photographs of Ansel Adams, who I'm sure all your listeners are aware of. Um, Ansel Adams uh, was authorized by the government to photograph one of the incarceration camps at Manzanar, and, um, and the book includes his photographs because at the end of the war, he donated the photographs to the United States government. So all these pictures in the book belong to us. Why did the government want to photograph so much of this? Something that we look back on today with, with a certain collective shame as a country. And yet at the time, the government wanted to document very thoroughly what it was doing. I think the government saw it as their responsibility to document what they were doing. Um, they felt that the treatment of Japanese Americans was humane. Looking back at it, it's hard to make that argument. Uh, people were generally given a week to report to the government and a few days then to sell everything they had except what they could carry. And they were taken to 10 camps throughout the West. The camps were generally in the middle of deserts or in very vacant areas. and Many of the 110,000 people that were picked up spent the next three years, the duration of the war, in these camps, uh, guarded by soldiers, surrounded by barbed wire. So um, it, it wasn't what I think any of us would really consider humane. Uh, the best I think you could say is some people thought it was necessary, um, but it's, it's hard looking back to, to understand um, how United States citizens, and there were 70,000 of the 110,000 that were picked up were U.S. citizens born in the United States, could be forcibly removed from their homes, not ever charged, not ever tried, and taken away for this many years. What resistance, if any, was there at the time to doing this? What kind of political resistance was there? 
You know, there wasn't much. Um, the Japanese-American communities really um, had, did not have a lot of power. Uh, they were, as you mentioned in your introduction, one of the others, one of the other people that were, were considered a little bit out of the mainstream. They were a, a tiny minority, and um, they didn't have the political power. I had a chance to talk to about 25 people who were subjects uh, of these photographs, and several of them you know, wondered whether this would happen again, but many of them said it's important for every group to, to, to get power. Um, there were hearings held in California and along the West Coast as this was happening, and only one Japanese-American, a man by the name of James Amura, um, showed up at one of the hearings and wondered whether this was like the Gestapo, what was happening to America. Everything was changing. Um, sadly, there were few letters to the editor by, by non-Japanese by, by, by non people. Uh, there were a few organizations that stood up for it. Uh, the American Friends Service Committee was one that should be very proud that they did stand up. They wrote letters. They, they, they talked about this. But there wasn't a lot of um, um, people, partly because many Japanese Americans, I think, believed that this was their responsibility. This was their, uh, this was their part of the war effort. And they also felt that they shouldn't really question authority. This was part of their culture. Um, I think now uh, those who are still alive, I think in many ways regret that there wasn't more protest. And, and, and I think Americans who lived in California can regret that they didn't take a stand. I think it's a really important example for today. Beyond the Japanese community, was there any kind of political opposition to, to this, either in Washington or in, in California? No, as you mentioned, um, hysteria makes us make bad decisions. And um, there was this sense that there was a worry that Japan would invade the West Coast. Uh, the lessons of Pearl Harbor, the surprise invasion that killed over 2,000 Americans were on everyone's mind. Uh, two days later, there was, on Monday, there was a blackout. There were blackout drills in San Francisco. So there was this feeling that anything could happen, and um, and the unfortunate part was that the idea of who our enemy was got transformed, um, and I think it happens a lot in American and I'm sure in human life. You know, our enemy was the government of Japan, our enemy was the army and the navy of Japan. It wasn't the Japanese Americans that lived in this country, but we transferred it to worry about those people living in this country, fearing that they would be spying, that they would create sabotage, that they would co collaborate with the enemy, and there was never any evidence of any of it. So the, um, the, the thought that this was a wrong decision really didn't happen until midway through the war or late in the war or after the war. Many people like Earl Warren, who spoke vociferously against the Japanese Americans in California. He was the Attorney General of California at the time. He later um, apologized in his memoirs. He didn't really apologize, but he regretted his decision. Uh, other people like Tom Clark, who also became a Supreme Court Justice, uh, he was working for the Army at the time, and he was very apologetic of, of what what stance he had taken. It took a few years. It took some um, context before people realized what a wrong road we went down. And, and, and that's the remarkable thing about today, because there are people in the, in, the, in the new administration that 
have publicly stated that the incarceration of Japanese Americans provide a precedent mm-hmm. to the idea of making Muslim Americans register uh, specifically. And um, if anyone looks at this book or looks at history, I think they'll see very quickly that if it is a precedent, it's a really bad precedent, and we shouldn't be going down this road again. Talk about Eleanor Roosevelt's visit to the camp in '43, just a, a little over a year after they were put in place, and her reaction. Yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt was opposed to this whole process from the very beginning. Uh, she was a newspaper, among besides being first lady and married to President Roosevelt, she was a newspaper columnist, and she wrote uh, in the, in late 1941 that the idea of separating Americans due to their religion or their um, ethnic background is um, is absolutely unfair, and uh, she she wrote that it, if we if we go ahead with this, it will re- re- quote remove the one real hope of the future on which all humanity must now rely. So she was very very uh, much against this idea. Uh, she did visit the camps in Arizona, a camp in Arizona in 1943, uh, which really um, again solidified her feeling that this was wrong. She later said that it's very easy to make a mistake and very hard to um, turn it around. And, and, and you know, so um, she, she was a very independent woman and she had, you know, similar views uh, as her husband on many things, but she, she knew that this was the wrong thing to do. And what power did she have and, and what was she able to accomplish, if anything, in trying to turn the tide? You know, she she didn't have any power. Um, she had the power of opinion and persuasion, but um, there was s- such a rabid dislike of Japanese Americans among you know among the California community at the time. There was such prejudice that it was hard to turn around. Um, that prejudice was based on a lot of things. It was based on a feeling that Japanese Americans at the time were insular. They didn't uh, relate to uh, other, you know, other Americans, which of course w- w- was just not right because they were insular because they were made to be insular. Um, there was there was certainly a jealousy. Um, Japanese farms, Jap- the farms of Japanese Americans in California were particularly successful, amazingly successful, and um, that was, you know, they that was due to some of the skill that they brought over from Japan, but also it was really due to the hard work, families working 16 hours a day. Um, uh, you know, not just not just uh, mom and pops, but all the kids, you know, in the field. So they could, um, you know, they, there was this feeling that why can't we have farms that are successful as this? Um, and then there was this worry, this um, hysteria that swept through the community. Um, it's sad to, I, I've carefully read the local papers uh, from the period between Pearl Harbor, and uh, that which was obviously December 1941, and 11 weeks later when President Roosevelt uh, issued executive order, um, uh, the executive order that allowed the military to decide what would happen, to the fate of the Japanese Americans. And at first you think, well, that makes sense. The military is in charge of security, so why not leave it to the military? But of course, the military had no concerns and no interest in the civil liberties of U.S. citizens, and that was a presidential responsibility. So it was a great abdication of responsibility and power. There was another irony in this that you point out, in that the military had recruited tens of thousands of Japanese Americans 
to fight during the war for the Americans. Yeah, that changed over the years. At first, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, Japanese Americans were not allowed to join the military. Those who were in the military could continue. Uh, about a year later, uh, America needed you know fighting men so so much that they allowed Japanese Americans to enlist in the military. And then in 1944, they started a selective service. They started drafting American uh, right out of the camps. And and that was one of the moments of real um, demonstration against what had happened, because Japanese Americans in the camps, many of them, uh, many of them did enlist, and they they you know, the, their their regimental combat unit, the 442nd unit, was exemplary fighting in Italy. But many of them did resist, saying, you know, you can't take away my rights, you can't put me between behind barbed wire, and then make me fight for this country. Um, sadly. Most of, you know, they, they, they challenged it in court. They generally lost in court. There was one federal district judge in San Francisco, a man by the name of Lewis Goodman, who completely understood the argument and agreed with them. But most of the resistors uh, were sent to Leavenworth and other penitentiaries to sit out the war and several years after the war. So it's, it's taken to this time uh, for them to really get a... Um, um, to be honored, the resistors to be honored for what they fought against, uh, because for years they and their families were shunned. They were not, you know, they were they were questioning authority, which was really against the culture. Talk a little bit about what the conditions were like in these camps. Well, um, I would say that it was, you know, certainly not not very good. Um, they were generally in our well when 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 Japanese Americans were picked up and taken to temporary camps. Uh, many of the camps, there were 18 of them, and spread out mostly in California, but also Washington and Oregon. Uh, they were on county fairgrounds, and they were horse tra- race tracks. And there's very famous stories of um, Japanese Americans sleeping literally in horse stalls, uh, both in Tanferan near San Francisco and Santa Anita. Uh, when they went to the permanent camps, um, they were generally put in... Sh- very uh, army barracks. Army barracks. The rooms were large, and they weren't private. And families, and sometimes neighbors, shared rooms. Um, each room had one light bulb. Um, cold winds. Many, many accounts of cold winds. Uh, that there was very little inf- insulation. So these places, which were on desert plains, uh, the winds swept in, and the sand swept in. Uh, the bathrooms had very little privacy. There were communal bathrooms. Um, and, and people ate at mess halls, so um, so it was very difficult for families to really keep intact. Um, and obviously, there was barbed wire. There were soldiers. Um, it was a a very bleak existence. It's interesting in looking at these pictures, as powerful as the images are. The pictures are so spectacular in their composition and their look that, in some ways, they don't really convey the bleakness that that we're talking about. Well, I don't think that the photographers were encouraged to show that bleakness, but I think it, it sneaks in in a lot of pictures. Uh, you see lines of people waiting to eat, and you see um, the, the sweep of the deserts around the camps. Um, and, um, and, and I agree. I, we, we really we wanted to find historically, uh, artistically beautiful and historically important pictures. And um, the, the pictures that show the bleakest moments 
weren't really photographed and aren't available or aren't found in the archives. And that's why we really used first the accounts of of survivors of the camps to help explain that and 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 documents that show that. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about women and children in the camps. It was a particularly hard thing for women. Um, There's lots of accounts, especially early on, of the the shocking lack of privacy in bathrooms and how hard that was. These were very private people, like all of us, and um, they couldn't get over over that. Um, Children generally had a a much better time than their parents. Um, They were in a camp. Uh, They were surrounded by their friends. Usually towns were kind of kept together at camps, so your neighbors would probably be in the same camp. Uh, Their parents all of a sudden had an awful lot of time, and these were farmers that had very little time before they were picked up. So if you talk to someone who's a survivor from the camps who was young, they'll generally say that it was an adventure, that it was fun. Uh, If you talk to them a little bit longer about how it affected their entire family, they have a different story because obviously their parents were either in the prime of their life and taken away from their jobs or their their livelihoods, or they were, you know, getting to be elderly and losing those last good years before, you know, the, their later years in life. And so they, they're they very aware that for their family, uh, being in the camps was incredibly difficult. But, but on the whole, when they talk about their existence, and they're almost apologetic about it, they say, you know, I had kind of a good time. There's also the issue of them trying to put their lives back together once they got out of the camps once they were released a couple of years later. Right. The book really shows all phases of this of these four or five years, uh, starting from the lives that Japanese Americans had before they were picked up to those weeks of being picked up to the years, the, the, the weeks, the months in temporary camps and then years in camps and then being released. Um, many did return to California, their homes. They, they, they returned with trepidation because they had no idea how their farms had turned out, how their homes were. Um, there's there's pictures in the books about the um, vandalism of their property. Sometimes they kept their luggage and their suitcases and their belongings in Buddhist churches. They oftentimes came back and saw that those churches had been vandalized, that their items had been taken away. And sometimes they came back to their farms and other people were living in them. And um, if they had the legal right to stay, they, they pursued it, but it, it sometimes took weeks or months, um, and it was a long, slow, difficult process. Many of them, you know, obviously had no jobs, so they came back at, at the end of the book. They, there's trailer camps in Los Angeles that were set up, um, so it, it wasn't easy to come back to America. They, obviously, they, you know, they, were, they were all starting over again, and it was a difficult pro- process, and there were a lot of very sad memories. So many people ended up heading east. Um, I live in Chicago, and Chicago's Japanese population went from about 300 before the war to 20,000 a couple of years after the war. That was a, a large resettlement uh, center. Uh, other towns in the east and the Midwest, too, uh, you know, many people didn't want to return to their home. It wasn't until almost 40 years later, in 1980, that the government really set up a commission to look at what had happened. Talk about that. Right. Uh, it was in the early 80s, and um, the commission that that documented, um, they they ended up releasing a huge report called Personal Justice Denied. And um, basically they determined, the most important facts they determined was that there was absolutely no documented evidence of espionage, of sabotage. Um, 
there was no real direct military need for the detention. You know, it was it was hysteria, and they concluded that that it was that the incarceration was caused by basically race prejudice, by war historia, which we've talked about, and also the failure of political leadership. And that's what we discussed a little bit about uh, Roosevelt's decision not to really make a decision but leave it up to the military. When we look at the archives from Roosevelt during that period, do we find any opposition within the administration, any debates that ever took place inside the White House about doing this? Um, there were debates. There were people in the Justice Department who realized that it was likely not constitutional, um, and they basically said to Roosevelt that they'll make it work, and um, and there was a long three-year battle to basically keep it out of the Supreme Court. And eventually, in late 1944, it did come to the Supreme Court, three different cases. And on the day before the court was to decide, Roosevelt emptied the camp. So it's pretty clear that he knew what was going on. Um, Many of his top administrators uh, regretted the decisions later in life in their memoirs and in talks. But, um, you know, they were part of an administration that was very much trying to be efficient and effective and respond to the needs of America. And one of the needs that they saw was the security of the West Coast, and that's how they responded. Was Interestingly the- enough, um, there's talk now when I mentioned talk of it being a precedent and also talk that the Muslim registry is constitutional. And, mm-hmm. and I, I find it interesting that they're, they're using the same exact words as they used in 19, early 1942. To the best of your knowledge in, in looking at this, was the decision really about national security or was it a political decision at the time? Well, I think it was both. Um, I think that it was was um, said that it was national security, although there was absolutely no evidence to, to show that. Uh, so I would say it was national hysteria. And uh, politically, there was uh, an idea that this would solve the Japanese problem. Problem and the Japanese problem was that Jap- Japanese Americans were taking over, not taking over, but they were they were having far more influence on the land than uh, than their population showed. And there was this real, there were I, I found several editorials from small papers in California that says this is our chance in a way to get to get rid of the Japanese Americans that live here. And um, and they didn't use the word Japanese Americans, um, and and you know, get California to be white again. And <laughs> obviously, that was a sad part of my research, but a, but a real part of it. Richard Kahan, the book is Un-American: The Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I I appreciate the time that you gave me. Thank you.